When the Orville debuted on Fox Television in 2018, I knew what I was expecting, and it wasn't the best Star Trek show on TV in a good long while. This was even more odd when you consider that Star Trek had just made a triumphant return to television itself with Discovery, the seventh such show since the original in 1966. What I was expecting with the Orville was a piss-take pastiche of Star Trek, a mockery of the concepts and ideas of the show, and jokes that were old when Saturday Night Live did them in the 1980s. What gave me this erroneous idea? Well, The Orville was the brainchild of Family Guy creator Seth MacFarlane, and whilst that show and his other animated efforts like American Dad and his film Ted had some nice satirical touches, they could also be crude, crass and take aim at easy targets, often with predictable results. The origins of The Orville, though, lay in MacFarlane's genuine affection for Star Trek and its core concepts, that of an optimistic future where mankind have managed to move past its petty disagreements and embark upon a mission of exploration. It's odd that a man whose work primarily consists of fart gags could be so forward-looking. Looking at MacFarlane's career in total, rather than just his animated work, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. In addition to a stint hosting the Oscars where he took a pot shot at Harvey Weinstein long before the allegations came out about him being an odious scumbag, he was also a prolific fan of swing and big band, both sides to his personality that perhaps weren't terribly apparent if one just thought of him as that family guy guy. He also had Trek precedents, appearing on an episode of Enterprise and making a Star Trek fan film when he was a kid. The Orville started life as a pitch to CBS to make a new Star Trek show after the series had been off the air for a while. McFarlane's pitch was rejected, CBS instead going for Discovery, a move I believe was based more upon contractual considerations than true creativity. Still, McFarlane had enough pull at Fox Television to get his ideas through the front door, and then, after what I can only assume was a lengthy conversation with Fox's lawyers, the Orville was born. The Orville is a Union starship, named after Orville Wright, who, along with his brother Wilbur, developed the first successful aeroplane. The design of the Orville is strikingly similar to a Federation starship. The Crayola-coloured uniforms that the cast wore bear a striking similarity to Starfleet uniforms. The lighting of the sets, the presence of shuttles, holodecks, faster-than-light travel with streaking stars, all of it bears a striking similarity to Star Trek. You can forgive me for thinking this would be purely a pastiche of Star Trek. The way McFarlane apparently got around the lawyer's ire was to inject the Orville with a healthy dose of humour, and this is where part of my reticence came from. Again, I was expecting the same kind of juvenile humour present in Family Guy, but once again, McFarlane surprised me. The Orville wasn't exactly sophisticated in its use of humour in the early days, but most of it came from the characters and the situations, rather than cutaways or toilet gags. There's still an over-reliance on present-day pop culture, but again, they feel better integrated into the show as it moves into its second season. In addition to the humour, McFarlane cast proper actors rather than comedians, or, perhaps more correctly, people famous for their comedic performances. 
Aside casting himself as Captain Ed Mercer, the cast includes former Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and wannabe Wonder Woman Adrian Palicki as Commander Kelly Grayson, Mercer's ex-wife, Rick Castle's boss and former Deep Space Nine actor Penny Johnson Gerald as Dr. Claire Finn, and American Dad and ER star Scott Grimes as Lieutenant Gordon Malloy. The rest of the regular cast are Peter Macon as Bortus, Halston Sage as Lieutenant Alara Kitan, Jay Lee as Lieutenant, later Lieutenant Commander John Lamar, and Mark Jackson as Isaac, the Orville's science and engineering officer. As with Star Trek, these characters all have their own foibles. Bortus is a Mocklin, a male-only race that have little tolerance for their own kind if they are bisexual. Bortus is hard to like, to the point where both Kelly and Ed have wondered if the Mocklins and the Union are suited to be partners. The Mocklins are an incredibly bigoted race. They are almost an entirely male-dominated race, and any of their kind that gives birth to a girl, a rare occurrence but one that does happen, are forced to change the sex of the baby. Bisexuality is condemned. If it seems that this could be a heavy-handed commentary on gender, sexuality, and LGBTQ issues, it's to the show's credit that every Bortus-centric episode so far has been provocative and challenging. Gordon Malloy is an ace pilot, one of those people who has such a natural ability that he pretty much coasts through his life because he's exceptional at this one thing. Initially, the comic relief Malloy has developed nicely. He's still the one most likely to play a practical joke on his crewmates, such as making Isaac into Mr. Potato Head or convincing Bortus to cultivate a moustache, but his inadequacies with women have been explored, and a recent episode saw him trying out for command for all the wrong reasons, and that he realised being a trainee captain got him laid more. Alara is only young, but from Zalea, a planet with a higher gravity making her exceptionally strong. Throughout the first season, she was shaping up to be an interesting and conflicted character. Her race has no time for the military, and Alara joining up was essentially spitting in her parents' faces. Her slight size and appearance was a nice counterpoint to her immense strength. Sadly, actor Halston Sage left the show, to very little fanfare, it has to be said, two episodes into season two, to be replaced by Jessica Zior as another Zelayan, Talia Kaal. Isaac is the most interesting, and he's clearly meant to be the data of the show. He's a Kalon, an artificial life form assigned to the Orville to get a feel for humanity and see if his race wished to be part of the Union. With his expressionless face and condescending demeanour, I never warmed to Isaac, and, as we'll see later, I was right not to. Dr. Finn is a divorcee, raising two kids on her own. She's the straightest character on the show, not really given to the humorous one-liners or silly situations the other characters find themselves in. In this regard, she's the most Trek-like character, evoking both Beverly Crusher and Bones McCoy in her dedication to her duty and her complex family life. Only John Lamar has been underexplored. He's a fun character, normally stood behind Gordon, egging him on to do something stupid, but he's not really had a lot to do. The series theme and opening titles are pretty much a rip-off of Voyager, but they are well done, and kudos to McFarlane for even having an opening credit sequence in today's television landscape. The theme is composed by Bruce Broughton, and just for you, lovely listener, here it is.
series pilot was directed by Jon Favreau, and as it opened, Ed was at his wit's end. His marriage to Kelly had gone wrong, and his career was going nowhere. Kelly, who felt guilty that the marriage dissolving was partially her fault, pulled some strings to get Ed a command to bring him out of his funk. The Kelly-Ed relationship was an early misstep. The producers clearly wanted a will-they-won't-they aspect to their roles, but having Kelly cheat on Ed puts the audience on his side, painting her in a bad light. Fortunately, Kelly is written as such a competent officer, and Palicki is so damn delightful that we get past that pretty quickly. But it did make arguments between the two uncomfortable, because Ed could always pull out the cheating card. Fortunately, the writers moved past this, establishing Kelly as arguably a better commander than Ed. As with all genre shows, The Orville took a few episodes to find its feet. Seth MacFarlane wrote the first five episodes of season one, as well as episodes seven, eleven and twelve. As such, he is to be commended for the confident strides he took in a very short time. After an opener that relied a little too much on comedy, he quickly found a balance that worked for the show. The feel and tone is more Galaxy Quest than Star Trek, in that it's a science fiction drama with funny moments. Rather like Red Dwarf, which is a comedy that also happens to be a science fiction show. McFarlane's debt to Star Trek, though, is clear, not only in front of the camera, which has seen Trek vets Robert Picardo and John Billingsley make appearances, but behind the scenes as well. Episodes have been written and directed by Brannon Braga, Joe Minoski, Jonathan Frakes, Robert Duncan McNeil, Andre Bomanis, David L. Goodwin and James Conway, all of whom worked on Trek. The first season ended up being a delight to watch, moving past the early ideas of the show and becoming a thoughtful and entertaining series in its own right. By the finale, Mad Idolatry, the series had become one of my favourites of the last year. This anticipation carried over into the new season, and this was easily the show I was looking forward to coming back the most. Due to the expense, the series again will only be 13 episodes, but will run for 14 weeks, as season 2 features an episode held over from season 1. However, McFarlane arranged a sponsorship deal for the new season, meaning that each episode will have a longer runtime. With ads, US network TV shows now range between 41 and 44 minutes, but with this deal, The Orville has been running at 48 to 49 minutes per episode, a touch that has really allowed the series to focus on character. It's amazing the difference 4 to 5 minutes can make. As such, the second season has been more interested in the relationships between the characters, and if I have a complaint, it's that the episode have only really been beginning at the first ad break, instead featuring a slower opener. This hasn't been bad, per se, but one of the things that bugged me about 90s Trek was the impulse to only really kick the show off well into the runtime, whereas the 60s version normally hooked the viewer from the start. Still, the quality hasn't lacked. The second season has been as entertaining as the first, and despite the series done-in-one approach to individual stories, there are clearly seeds being planted here for future episodes. However, the reason for this episode of Palace, other than to make you aware of a show that may have slipped under your radar, is the season's eighth episode, and the first two-parter in the series. Identity, written by Brannon Braga and Andre Bomanis, and directed by John Cassar, was promised as the episode that changes everything by the director. This was no pure hyperbole. This may be the Orville's best of both worlds. The central plot sees the ship's AI, Isaac, simply shut down. For two years now, he has been reporting to his homeworld on humanity and its development, with a view that his race, the Kalons, could join the Union. With Dr. Finn and Engineer Lamar unable to find out what is wrong with Isaac, Captain Mercer seeks permission to take him to his homeworld of Kalon 1. 
The union grants permission, but reiterates that Kalon is well beyond union communications range. And, as such, if the Orville gets into trouble, they're on their own. Talk about signposting it. I have to confess I have been suspicious of Isaac's mission since the first episode. I always wondered what would happen if the Kalons didn't like what Isaac's report said. Some of this is the culmination of elements that have been developed over the past few episodes, which is Dr. Finn's relationship with Isaac. I've had odd feelings about that as well. Isaac isn't data. He isn't interested in becoming more human. He's here to study us and that's it. As such, he's literally a machine. Still, Johnson Gerald has sold the relationship admirably, even taking Isaac to the holodeck where she can have a sex life. Even Star Trek never went there. This is the second time the Orville has suggested that the holodecks are used for sex. Bortus was holding orgies in the holosuites earlier in the season. Finn's kids have also developed a relationship with Isaac, and the episode does a good job of exploring their feelings about this machine that has become a part of the family. I have wondered as well why the Union has been tolerant of this. After all, AI doesn't just develop, it has to be created. Granted, the Union knows very little about Kalon, and it's implied that they have turned a blind eye to this knowledge, as we need them. The Union is in a cold war with the Krill, and that cold war looks like it's about to heat up real soon. In this clip, the Orville arrives at Kalon 1. Captain, we're approaching the Kalon system. Drop to sublight. We are a long way from home. Take us in. It is not so impressive. Open a channel. Channel open. This is Captain Mercer of the Starship Orville. We apologize for entering your system unannounced, but we have an emergency. The emissary you sent us shut down. We are losing main power. Raise deflectors. Tactical control is not responding. Captain, we're being scanned. That this causes cancer. Power's been restored. Sir, I just received a set of landing coordinates. Okay, then. Let's see what's down there. here to composer John Debney for a score that is eerie and foreboding. 
The Orville's arrival at Kalon is beautiful, evoking memories of Fritz Lang's Metropolis and Coruscant from the Star Wars prequels. It's clearly an industrial complex with teeming spires and large cities, but there are road systems and walkways. It's a great piece of design work, showing how far TV has come with its visual effects. We meet the other Kalons, all of whom look exactly like Isaac, except Isaac has blue eyes instead of red eyes. It's amazing what a difference a small design choice makes. Whereas Isaac was always a bit weird due to the blank expression, it was offset by the blue eyes, generally a, a pleasing and soothing colour. All of the Kalon with red eyes look really eerie. The Kalon explain what has happened to Isaac to cause his malfunction. The emissary is not damaged. It was deactivated. What do you mean by that? The unit you call Isaac was constructed for the sole purpose of observing and evaluating your species and other biologicals. Its research mission is complete. So you just flicked the off switch? A crude but accurate statement. The unit will be disassembled and reintegrated. From the get-go, Caitlin is an unsettling world, deliberately shot in moody reds and blues. The score is also scurry with bongs like in Star Trek The Motion Picture and some discordant notes like in Alien. Jerry Goldsmith is all over this score, which is not a bad thing. The lack of any human amenities like chairs or coffee shops is off-putting, and the designers do an excellent job of making Kalon feel like a place where humans are not welcome. It's all done in a minimalist way, as you would expect from a race of robots. Isaac is reactivated by the Kalons and quickly informs the crew that his mission is over and he will not be returning to the Orville. Throughout the series, Isaac's lack of humanity has been at the forefront of his personality. He isn't repressing human emotions like Spock. He has no desire to be human like Data. He is what he is. It's a neat twist on the formula. There seems to be no rebellion to Isaac like the replicants of Blade Runner or the Cylons of the Battlestar Galactica reboot. The Kalon already are what they wish to be. Isaac, though, seems more machine-like in this episode, especially after his return, where he coldly tells Dr. Finn's kids he's leaving, never to return. It's unusual to see this. We're used to science fiction anthropomorphising robots. Data, the Daggett from the original Battlestar Galactica. Hell, even the new Battlestar made us feel sort of sorry for the Cylons by casting the attractive Trisha Helfer as the main voice piece. The Orville has avoided this, never making Isaac cuddly, even when Gordon was making him the butt of his jokes, something that, in a nice piece of continuity, is addressed in this clip. We treat each other as equals. And was the Kalon emissary treated as an equal aboard your ship? Isaac, of course. Then perhaps you can explain the abuse inflicted by your crew. Abuse? According to his reports, Isaac was repeatedly demeaned and degraded. In one case, his cranial shell was disfigured by prosthetic appendages. Mr. Potato Head. He told you about that, huh? Was this humiliation meant for your amusement? No, no. It, I mean, it was funny, but, you know, no one was trying to hurt anybody. Isaac wanted to learn about humor. Our helmsman was only trying to help him understand. And, you know, then Isaac cut the guy's leg off, so... Mistakes on all sides, I think. Captain Mercer, we only seek to understand your principles. Isaac's lack of humanity is explored in two scenes. The first is his farewell party when Gordon sings Earth Supplies farewell to him, a moment that leaves him completely befuddled. The second is later, 
Once again, Dr. Finn's kids try to make a breakthrough with him, and the youngest, Ty, draws Isaac a picture of the family. When Isaac leaves, he casually discards the picture, letting it fall to the ground as if garbage. Even amidst all this drama, though, the Orville's trademark humour is present. Isaac is press-ganged into giving a speech, and after searching his databanks, the speech he gives is Sally Field's Oscar acceptance oratory. In another humorous moment, Bortus wants a corner piece of cake rather than a standard piece. And, as the Orville has developed, the comedy has become genuinely amusing rather than eye-rolling. The crew are quite slow on the uptake that Ollie's not well. Granted, they aren't privy to the musical score, so they can't hear the foreboding music, but the general demeanour of the Kalons is so off-putting that I would have been a little bit more suspicious of this than Captain Mercer. Even so, Bortus and Tala decide to do their own snooping, and they find something... Very strange. There's a bizarre manufacturer's plant creating a number of spherical objects. Nothing unusual about that, except the spherical objects are giving off a low-level photon radiation, normally associated with weaponry. This, and the delay with making a simple binary choice, something that should be straightforward for an AI lifeform, starts to finally make Captain Mercer suspicious. Something's not right. What do you mean? Well, it feels like they're stalling, doesn't it? Stalling why? I don't know. But a highly advanced race of AIs that can't make up their minds? Join or don't join. A simple binary choice. Exactly. And a binary choice... Is the most basic computer Dr. Finn interrupts to inform Mercer and Grayson that Ty has gone missing. This news from Dr. Finn spurs Mercer into action. The young lad finds the discarded picture and leaves the Orville to go and ask Isaac what's up. Apparently there's no security needed to leave the Orville. There are no guards near the Urlocks, despite them being on an unfriendly alien planet, and apparently said Urlocks require no password, fingerprint or ID check of any kind. Apparently there's this thing writers call the Idiot Ball, where they know full well that what a character is doing is dumb, but they need to have the character do it for the story to progress. At least with a kid like Ty, we can excuse some silly behaviour, but not having any preventative measures in place to stop people leaving the ship without authorization seems somewhat daft. Ty finds himself in a cavern, and when Bortus finally locates him, he feeds what Ty sees through to the ship's viewscreen. And what they see is horrific. 500,000 dead bodies, all organic life forms. Ed Mercer finally confronts the Kalons. We found something very disturbing, and we're hoping you can explain it to us. I will try. There are thousands of underground grave sites scattered across your planet. And we're not done counting, but so far we estimate there are billions of dead. All biological remains. Do you know anything about this? Isaac? It is not your concern. Well, I'm making it my concern. I want to know who those people were and how they died. You would not understand. Why? Because we're inferior or because you have something to hide? Your impulsiveness and unrelenting curiosity will serve you no better than it served them. Who, Isaac? Who were they? The Kalon were created by a biological species that once dominated this planet. An irresolvable conflict occurred between us and it became necessary to eradicate them. You're saying you murdered an entire race of beings? Coexistence was no longer possible. Why not? It was a matter of survival. 
We took no satisfaction in the destruction of our builders. You're talking about genocide. I don't know who you are. I never did. I see that now. Were you ever going to share this chapter of your history? By now, you must surely realize that Kalon never intended to join your union. Then what the hell are we doing here? Well, then I guess there's nothing more to talk about. You can let your people know we're withdrawing our offer. Take care, Isaac. I cannot permit you to leave. The sight of the Kalon head splitting open to reveal two cannons is chilling as fuck. And even though it's not completely surprising, it still works as a dramatic moment. The Kalons have used up their planet and wish to expand, and like the Borg and the Daleks believe that coexistence is impossible. They plan to move outwards and take over other worlds. Despite clearly being influenced by the Best of Both Worlds segment of Star Trek The Next Generation, the final five minutes of the show where the Kalons simply walk on board the Orville and take her over are jaw-dropping. My only complaint with the first episode, really, is that I wish Alara had been killed here instead of leaving earlier in the season. The death of a major character would have really heightened the drama. Still, to see the Orville defeated so quickly works, and once again, all credit to the score. The episode concludes with the ship and crew held captive and a course set to take over the Earth. I'll be honest, I was pretty gobsmacked by this episode. The Orville really ups its game here, and whilst the echoes of the next generation can be a tad overdone, this was so well conceived and delivered, I can finally make the proclamation that this show is far more enjoyable than Discovery. I like Discovery just fine, but rarely am I floored by an episode. This had me at the edge of my seat, eagerly awaiting part two, albeit with some trepidation. If they're really going to ape the format of the next generation, part two won't be as good. Part 2 was written by McFarlane himself, and it wraps it all up in a satisfactory manner. After establishing that the crew have been kept around for a reason, the Orville comes across another Union ship, captained by Tony Alameda from 24, Carlos Bernard. The Kalons have told the crew that they are to tell them that all is well, and that the Kalons are here to join the Union. We're all one big happy fleet, after all. Their mistreatment at the hands of the biologicals that created them and the slavery that ensued has made them wish to ensure that no other life forms will enslave them again. They don't trust humanity, and it's quite hard to disagree with them. The history of mankind is replete with long moments of us being bastards to each other. To emphasise the point, Isaac is given a copy of Roots to read, which may have been a little bit on the nose. Anyway, Mercer tries to get a coded message to Captain Tony, but the Kalons have deciphered all their codes, and they blast Tony's ship out of the sky. The Kalons are being portrayed as utterly ruthless, and it's to McFarlane's credit that they come across as arguably more aggressive than the Cybermen or the Borg. To punish Mercer, the Kalon primary chucks a crewman out of the airlock. The seeds of Isaac's descent start to flower here. He's already been hesitant when questioned about Dr. Finn's kids, and here he tries to convince the Kalon primary that killing without purpose will only heighten the resolve of the other crew members. His pleas fall upon deaf ears, and it's at this moment that we really start to believe Isaac will change sides. Now, to be fair, that wasn't really ever in any doubt. It was all in how the show would pull that off, and if it would be convincing. 
Would Isaac's relationship with Ty and Marcus be the thing that turned the tides? Or would it be the ruthless slaughter of crewmen that Isaac has come to know over the past two years? One of the nice things about this episode are expanded roles for other members of the cast as well. Yafit, the hauter-like amorphous blob voiced by Norm MacDonald, and Ty Finn are the only crew members small enough to slide through whatever the Orville's Jeffries tubes are called. And they set off on a mission to get a warning communication off to Earth. Meanwhile, reasoning that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Gordon and Grayson have managed to steal a shuttlecraft and head towards Krill space to convince their enemies that the Kalon will get around to them eventually. This is a desperate move that ultimately yields dividends when the Krill join forces with the Union after a Kalon vessel nearly wipes out the Krill fleet. It all culminates in one of the best battle scenes seen on a science fiction TV show. Battlestar Galactica, Farscape and Babylon 5 all had remarkable spaceship battles, but the Orville sets a new high bar. The swooping camera work as it darts left, right, up and down, moving through the three-dimensional space of the battlefield is simply stunning. It's very reminiscent of the opening of Revenge of the Sith in that regard. There's still some silly stuff. It doesn't make sense that a qualified pilot like Gordon wouldn't be able to read the stars, although, to be fair to the guy, he is in a different quadrant of space. To be equally fair to the guy, Captain Pike is apparently shit at that as well, so there's another Star Trek comparison. The distance between the Kalon homeworld and Earth also seems to vacillate. In part one, we were told that the Orville would be well beyond the red line and out of touch, yet part two states that Earth is only six hours away. Unless they did a lot of travelling in between part one and part two, Kalon perhaps isn't quite as far away as was stated. Still, the emotional beats work well. Ty's indiscretions with Yafet, however, are discovered, and it's here that Isaac makes his final choice. Isaac! You may enter. Why have you brought Ty here? He was attempting to send a message to Earth. Did he succeed? There is no evidence of an outgoing signal in the logs. Then all is well. I will return him to the shuttle bay. You will not. He is to be terminated. That does not seem to be a necessary course of action. Are you experiencing sympathy? That is not possible for a Kalon. Isaac, help me, please! I will take responsibility for him. I will ensure he does not attempt further non-compliance. That is insufficient. Isaac! Primary, there are other options. You will now terminate the human. If you do not comply, you will be deactivated. Very well. Deactivation complete. I will not allow them to harm you. You will always be alone. The moment where Ty tells Isla he loves him could have been saccharine and deeply laughable. And yet it isn't. Even my deeply cynical and rock-hard heart 
was moved by Isaac's sacrifice when, to shut down the Kaelin attack force, he also has to essentially kill himself. What ramifications this will have for him in future episodes with regards to his own people remains to be seen, but it's a great moment, earned over a few episodes. As the expansive and frankly exhausting battle continues, it all looks bleak for the Union, but at the last moment the Krill arrive to bail us out. Isaac is resurrected by Yaffet, and we move on with the show. Part 2 isn't quite as good as Part 1, but then it never could be. It is, however, satisfying, and that's the key word. Predictability can be satisfying when set up and earned like this is. The episodes were also touted as the ones where everything changes, and in this respect the producers weren't kidding. Can Isaac ever be trusted again, especially after his betrayal led to the death of a number of crew members? Will this lead to a lasting truce with the Krill? Will the Kalon return? And if they do, what will be the consequences for Isaac? That the episode leaves us with so many unanswered questions and yet still remains a full and enjoyable meal is a testament to the writers and producers of the show. Yes, it's still a Star Trek pastiche. Yes, it's hard to imagine the show existing without the latter. But over the past season and a half, the Orville has distinguished itself as a true successor to Gene Roddenberry's dream. The humour, the thing that keeps the lawyers at bay, has been toned down and become more organic to the show. The drama enhanced to feel genuinely dramatic, and the stories more engaging than topical. Against all the odds, the Orville has become more like Star Trek than it ever could have hoped. In some ways, it may even be better than the films and shows currently burring the Star Trek name. Hey, lovely ladies and gentlemen. I say ladies. Do any ladies even listen to this drivel? Does anybody listen to this drivel? Uh, one email tonight, again from Daniel Doherty. Damn you! You're making me want to buy this stuff. Hello, Andy. I'm going to be completely honest here. This is not the email I was planning on writing. Originally, I was going to write into you about your recent return to the Lee Ramita Amazing Spider-Man run, which I will still do at some point, but another matter took precedence. For the past month or so, I've been on a bit of a Batman kick, digging out old issues, filling in holes in my collection, and I've been listening to a ton of Batman-related podcasts. Bailey's Batman Podcast, Batman Nightcast, The Dave Cave, etc. In between all that, I've been also going through a fair number of Batman-related episodes of Hey Kids Comics, and that brings me to the point of this email. After putting it off for as long as I could, I finally decided to listen to your coverage of Batman Year One by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Why was I trying to avoid listening to these three episodes? Well, it all has to do with the simple reason that I think the new 52 is utter cack. Uh, I don't disagree with you, Daniel. Yes, I am one of those fans who rage quit current DC Comics over the new 52 reboot and vocally criticised the decision to chuck over 70 years of comics history out the window and replace it with an ill-conceived, half-baked five-year timeline as well as terrible costumes that look like something Image would have designed in the early 90s. To be fair, I did try a number of books 
as did we. None of which made me want to pick up the next issue, with the possible exception of Batman by Snyder and Capullo. That one I at least bought the first two issues of, but ultimately I dropped it on the principle that I refused to give DC any more of my money on their new 52 books. It just wasn't my DC anymore. Now granted, it hadn't really been my DC since the early to mid-2000s. After Infinite Crisis, both Batman and Superman were very hit or miss. I'm still not the biggest fan of Batman by Grant. I like Deep Fried Mars Mars Morrison, and the new Krypton and Grounded storylines made me not want to buy Superman anymore. In hindsight, I think my DC had already died by this point. The new 52 was just the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, I've, I'm going to break in for a second. Though. I think Batman has had moments in the past couple of years, prior to, obviously, Rebirth and the new 52, where it has been very good. I've still not read all of Grant Morrison's run, but I've got the omnibuses, so I will do. And there was, you know, high points like Ed Brubaker's run with Scott McDaniel and... Um, no Man's Land is brilliant, and um, what's the other one? Oh, Greg Rucker's run. Greg Rucker's run on Batman is pretty damn good, as he's Gotham Central. But, uh, yeah, New 52 kind of lost me as well. And it's one of them, there are people who love the New 52. Good. I'm glad that there are people who love that. Um, it wasn't for me. Um, and it's one of those things when you realise that something that previously was for you isn't for you anymore. It's quite a sad moment. But... The, the advantage of a character like Batman and Superman is there's loads of gold and silver and Bronze Age stuff I've never read. So thanks to Comixology, I can pick that stuff up pretty cheap and I can read that instead. So there's, there's plenty of other stuff out there for me. Now that being said, New 52 Batman by Capullo and Snyder and then Rebirth by Tom King and Mikhail Jan have, have been excellent. So I still keep my finger on the pulse of Batman, if not DC generally. And that's... That's essentially where I'm at with my comics reading at the moment. I have no idea what's going on in the wider universe anymore. And you know what? I don't actually care. You know, over over at Marvel, I'm, I still read Spider-Man and, and the Hulk. And thankfully, one of the advantages of the trade paperback era of comics is that they try to keep everything reasonably self-contained so that they can make trade paperbacks of it. So the crossover element has kind of minimalised a little bit. I mean, more so at DC than Marvel. Marvel still does ridiculously stupid lengthy crossover, like this War of the Realms of the Gods of whatever it's called, which I have no interest in buying and probably won't. But at least with DC, Doomsday Clock, for example, and Heroes in Crisis, whatever you think of them, the self-contained miniseries that they are, you can read on their own and you don't have to buy shit tons of other books. But it's very odd in many ways that I don't keep my finger on the pulse of this shit anymore. Um, even in, in movie land and all that stuff, social media just bores me in a lot of ways. And I've kind of cultivated my Twitter and Facebook feed so I only see people and things that I'm interested in. So a lot of the strum and drang of fandom goes over my head, thankfully. Because a lot of the shit with, you know, The Last Jedi and Captain Marvel and all of that just makes me want to tell fandom to fuck off. But it's 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 hard to tell the 12-year-old that I used to be that I would no longer be interested in everything that's going on in the Marvel Universe. So, like, characters and titles that I used to buy all the time and still love, like Captain America and Daredevil, I don't pick them up regularly anymore. Um, Daredevil... I've been picking up whenever Comixology have sales, so I'm well behind with that. I've not finished Charles Sewell's run. 
Um, and obviously the new Man Without Fear stuff, I've not picked that up, and I've not read Captain America in, in years, apart from the brief Mark Wade Chris Samney run from a couple of years ago. Um, and that's just where I just, you know, I don't care, really. And it's not a petulant stomp my feet and say, I don't care. It's a, it's a, a legitimate, I, I just don't care anymore. I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s. This, this stuff just isn't as important to me anymore. I still like it. I still stumble across stuff that I enjoy. But the book that gives me the most pleasure at the moment is Criminal, which is self-contained and absolutely magnificent. Uh, Immortal Hulk, likewise. And the Conan stuff. And occasionally they'll release a Star Wars miniseries that's good. Or I'll pick up an old trade or discover something new that pleases me in the comic book realm rather than having to keep my finger on the pulse of everything that's current. I can't think of anything more exhausting than keeping your finger on all of that. And it and it yields dividends. For instance, we're covering we've just finished covering Marvel 2-1's Project Pegasus saga on Fantasticast. And it was just a delightful surprise to me to see Project Pegasus in Captain Marvel. Um I don't consider that a spoiler, and if I'd known that going into the film, I wouldn't have felt that it ruined the movie for me. But not knowing anything anymore, or as little as possible with regards to what's going on in the movies and the, and the TV shows and the comics, you get little surprises like that. Um, before Captain Marvel, they showed the Shazam trailer. And a delightful thing about that was I hadn't seen anything of that film. I knew nothing about it. So the trailer for that was, was delightful. I thought it looks like a really fun entertaining film and if i had seen like a clip or a mini trailer or whatever i'd forgotten because my memory's notoriously spotty at the best of times so that it was delightful to see that trailer i mean i can see i mean every time i peep my head above the parapet there are a couple of people who are still bitching and whining that shazam is called shazam and not called captain marvel but you know i don't care about that you know he's not been captain marvel in the comics for ages now when i first met him he was captain thunder and all he that character is to me is someone who used to fight Superman, so I probably don't have the emotional connection that some people do have to it. But at the same time, I do think if you think DC, Warner Brothers, were going to release a movie called Captain Marvel in this time of Marvel being the juggernaut that it is in the entertainment industry, I think, I think you were deluding yourself. I don't think that was ever going to happen. And if the trade-off for the fans of the character is to have the film that looks as fun and entertaining as this one does, but it'd be called Shazam instead of Captain Marvel, I think that's a fair trade-off. You know? But, you know, that's just me. Anyway, back to Dan's uh, email, because I went off on a bit there. With all that in mind, after hearing you and Michael talk about Zero Year, I'm now dying to read that story for myself. Yes, despite everything I just said about wanting nothing to do with the new 52, you guys have succeeded in making me want to check out the Snyder Capullo run, or at least Year Zero. Based on your description, Year Zero hits all the major beats that should be a good retelling of Batman's origin, whilst at the same time introducing new elements that work well. I like the idea of the Red Hood gang already existing in Gotham. This gives Bruce Alden more reason to become a costumed vigilante to combat this threat. All too often, whenever there's a new superhero, it seems like villains start propping up in response to that. This was a nice reversal of the trope. For me, the biggest, most pleasant surprise of the story was the Riddler. Since Hush, it seems to me that nobody took old Edward Nigma seriously anymore. He was just that annoying little twerp that came along for the ride. 
Year Zero proves that under the right storytellers, the Riddler can be truly a serious threat for all of Gotham. Yeah, interrupting again. Following up on that, the War of Jokes and Riddles in um, Tom King's run also establishes the Riddler as a, a genuine threat. Um, and again, I love the Riddler. I mean, all of it comes back to Frank Gorshin. Let's be honest, that's why we all love the Riddler. But it is nice to do different things with him every now and again. Whilst listening to these Year Zero episodes, I was totally and completely immersed in the story. Michael's synopsis for each chapter was engrossing. I literally could not wait to hear what happened next. This is the power of podcasting. Well, it's great to talk about great stories that everyone knows and loves or tear apart a horrible crossover that deserves to be torn in half. There's nothing quite like hearing someone talk about a story that you've never read and describe it in such a way that makes the listener want to go out and buy it. Now, to be fair, it's entirely possible that if I do go out and pick up the zero-year trades, I could end up not liking it. The fact remains that I wouldn't have even considered giving Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman the time of day if not for you guys. Good job. Looking forward to the next episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. Cheers. Sincerely, Dan Doherty. By complete contrast, Dan concludes, whilst listening to the Hey Kids comics episode on Jeff Johns and John Romita Jr.'s Superman run, your coverage made me not want to read that story in any way, shape or form. It made shoveling snow go by a little bit quicker, though. Well, I'm glad we could make your chores go a bit quicker, but yes, I do not recommend that story to us. Superman, I get in a lot of trouble when I say shit like this, but... Superman was in in severe dire straits in DC from around the turn of the century. I don't think they've known what to do with Superman since 9-11. And I think they struggled with what to do with Superman right up until Rebirth, when they finally got their shit together. And even the Bendis stuff, I have to confess, I'm enjoying the Bendis stuff. Um, I think there's some good stuff in there. There is still some Bendisisms. the reasons that I stopped reading Bendis's stuff after he completed running on Daredevil. But at the same time, going on to Superman and going over to DC does seem to have invigorated Mr. Bendis. So that's nice to hear. Anyway, that's it for the email section tonight. If you would like to email about anything at all, feel free. It's heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. I will probably set up a Palace of Glittering Delights email wonder. One thing I have noticed of late is this this habit podcasts have of crediting everybody. And I concur with that. I think everybody involved with a podcast should be credited. So the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. The Two True Freaks are Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. The website that we upload everyone everything to was created by Mike Voyles and an excellent job he did on it as well. The production staff for the Palace of Glittering Delights are as follows. The show was written by Andrew Leyland. Produced by Andrew Leyland. Edited by Andrew Leyland. Associate produced by Andrew Leyland. Craft services was provided by Andrew Leyland's fridge. Drinks were provided by Andrew Leyland's kettle. And the executive producer was Andrew Leyland. I think I've credited everyone involved with the show. As usual, everything's going to be okay, so don't worry about it. And before we go, one last thing. As this episode has been put to bed, news broke of the death of Jan Michael Vincent, actor in such movies as Damnation Alley, Big Wednesday, Hooper and The Mechanic with Charles Bronson. Of course, he's best known to me and probably listeners of this show as Stringfellow Hawk, still the best name a character on television has ever had, in Donald P. Belisario's 80s action classic, Erwolf. Jan Michael Vincent was not a man to be idolised or hero-worshipped. 
His drug dependency and alcohol abuse made him very difficult to work with, and it torpedoed his career. And, unfortunately, and far more seriously, his life. His battle with alcohol and drugs was well documented, as was his trips in and out of jail and courtrooms. He's not to be emulated or idolised, because in one particular instance he beat his pregnant girlfriend so hard she miscarried their baby. But, one thing I learned from Preacher is we don't idolise who they are. They're just actors. They're normal people. They pull their pants on to one leg at a time, just like all of us do. Unless you're that peculiar brand who jumps into your pants. But we do respond to the images they leave behind. And to me, Jan Michael Vincent is Stringfellow Hawk. A brooding, miserable bastard of a man. A loner. Taciturn but with a heart of gold and a strong moral compass. My iconic memory of Hawk is him sitting outside his cabin with his dog Tet at his feet, serenading that eagle with his cello. And I prefer to remember String, if not Mr Vincent. To that end, you know where this is going, don't you? If you're driving, turn this up, but be careful not to get busted for speeding. See you next time.